So far we have only discussed the first two foundations of mindfulness, the body and the feeling. Now we'll have to look at number three and four. The third one, the mental-emotional states, the states in which we find our mind before our reaction. Now, if we have sufficient mindfulness to notice those states, we don't need to react. We can watch them arising and ceasing. Now, our mental states may be something like a mind which is quite expansive, or it may be contracted. It may be very concentrated, or it may be completely distracted. It may be a mind which is thinking discursively, or fantasizing. Maybe a mind that is remembering, but it may also be a mind which is actually inquiring. So we can see what kind of mental state has arisen, and when we see what kind of mental state has arisen, we can choose, if we are mindful enough, we can choose whether we want to actually continue with it, or whether we'd be better off without it. Now, emotional states <coughs> go under the same category. We can find that there is anger arising, irritation, loving-kindness, compassion. We can find that we have a loving state or a hating state. We can find that we are irritated or that we have a calm state. Obviously, we would prefer those that are beneficial to our peacefulness and try to let go of the others. But in order to recognize which state has arisen and not react to it, we have to first be extremely mindful. Now, mindfulness is obviously practiced during the meditation. If we're not attentive to that what is, we can't even begin to meditate. But that isn't enough. We have to constantly foster and cultivate that through introspection. Introspection is just that, getting to know oneself. Now, the mental-emotional states are not yet being angry. Being angry is content of mind, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So we can see that the third foundation of mindfulness is not just thinking, 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 because that isn't good enough. The mind does think, but the mind in the Buddhist terminology also is included, with the mind is included, our 
emotional state, our feelings. So here we become aware of whatever arises. And when we are mindful, we don't have any blame towards it because it's another mental state, blaming. We are just noticing what has arisen and knowing it. And as we know it, we will be able to choose whether there's any point in continuing with it or whether we should just watch it arising and ceasing. Now, if we can't watch it arise and cease but are reacting to it, then, of course, we will have to take the next step. But with this one, the first step of knowing what's going on within us, we have a far better defense system against our hindrances. Now, the five hindrances, which are part of knowing our mind content and are automatically reduced through the meditative absorptions, are that which give us the greatest problems. But they don't have to arise out of the mental emotional states because we don't have to follow through on them. In other words, if we get irritated, we feel that there is, we are aware of the fact that there's an irritation feeling within. We can do three things. The first one is what we usually do, we get irritated. And then, being irritated, we're probably going to get angry. And getting angry, we don't feel good. And we look for something that can be blamed for our anger. We're looking for some, somewhere to put the trigger, the cause. In reality, what has really happened that it's just an emotional state has arisen which would, without our choice of becoming irritated or angry, have disappeared again. The second choice we have is watching it arise and go away. And the third choice is the one which is more effective in the beginning of practice, far more beneficial because it's easier. It's easier than watching arising and ceasing. It's a substitution. Now the substitution is what we learn in the meditation. We substitute, we have to, our discursive thinking with attention on the breath. If we don't do that, we'll keep on thinking discursively for the rest of our natural life. If we don't substitute with something. Now here, in the meditation, obviously we have to substitute with the meditation subject. And even in 
the meditative absorption, we substitute the first one with the second, we substitute the second with the third, and so on. If we don't do any of that, we're going to be stuck forever after, right where we are. We may be hoping for better times, but that's not according to the Buddha's teaching. According to the Buddha's teaching, we've got to do something about it. We've got to deliberately put our mind in that direction. So the substitution that we've learned in meditation should stand us in good stead to do exactly the same thing in every in everyday life because if we don't connect our meditation practice to everyday life we have no idea what we were meditating for and that's certainly not a very useful endeavor then we could do something else then that we do what we're doing it for so if there is of an unknowing that anger an anger state has arisen or a dull state has arisen or um, irritation or a contracted mind a contracted mind is ego-centered mind any of that we don't have to go on with it we can drop it we can drop it or we can substitute now substituting is much easier because the mind needs something to do as you know in meditation because it wants something to do it's thinking and planning and hoping and remembering and having all these disturbing factors in it which prevent one from meditating properly the mind needs something to do so here instead of having one mental state we substitute with another to drop it to know it and drop it is much more difficult and comes with practice eventually one day but not immediately having substituted often enough we have learned that action and having learned that action we know that the first part is letting go we can't substitute for another thing unless we have let go of the first thing and because we have learned this letting go meanwhile the first part of this we can then let go of whatever it is that has arisen which isn't beneficial now the labeling in meditation when there is still that to be done is enormously helpful to be able to recognize any of these states in daily life and these states in daily life are almost continuous it's either the one or the other it's coming and going and it's very very often negative the negativity is very often greater than one's ability to be positive 
And that should never be believed, that things are really so. We cannot have the right kind of viewpoint until we have shed all ego illusions. All our viewpoints, all our opinions, all our standpoints are based on I think, I know, I believe, I have experienced, and so on. And since there is no I, none of them can be correct. The first discourse in the Diganikaya and the long discourses of which we're reading the ninth one is the Brahmajala Sutta the net of views in which the Buddha explains 62 views which are like headings and under which all the views that mankind can possibly have are listed, each one of them totally wrong. Each one based on an illusion. There is no absolutely right viewpoint ever to be had by an unenlightened person. It's always upside down. And therefore, it is very important that we have a handle, something that we can practice in order to become aware of what is actually going on within, namely the labeling, which has shown us in the meditation already that we don't have to believe any of those thoughts on any of those mental or emotional states which arise so that we know in daily life none of them when they are negative and detrimental need to be believed they can be changed until we have experienced in meditation that anything that arises is just arising and hasn't got any basis in fact we will believe that we have every right to be angry, irritated every justification for it because of and then we have our reasons for that whichever they may be if we have any practice behind us we try to make those reasons very reasonable and if we have no practice behind us anything will do whatever it is but if we have practiced with clear comprehension, then we know that whatever it is, it doesn't have any basis. In fact, it's just something that has arisen in us. And that shows us then that we can change it. So the labeling helps us to know what it is through the meditation practice. The substitution of in the meditation practice, practice helps us to do exactly the same with any of the states which arise. Now, these states that arise in us, whether they are based on a thinking process or based on a feeling process, will without any mindfulness give rise to a reaction. Now the reaction if, it, if we're not 
haven't trained our minds sufficiently, the reaction to the unpleasant ones will be in the, under the heading of hate. And the reaction to the pleasant ones, those that are seem to be beneficial, they might be in the direction of greed. So we have to then <coughs> use the fourth base of mindfulness. And the fourth base of mindfulness is the content of the mind when it has already reacted to the mental emotional states. Now the mental emotional states need clear comprehension. The clear comprehension which goes together with mindfulness is especially important at this point because the clear comprehension doesn't just mean that we know which state has arisen, it does mean that also, but we can now use all four inquiries of clear comprehension. And if we don't do that, we will muddle along like everybody else. It's uh, muddling between feeling all right and feeling dreadful and everything in the middle. It doesn't have any, we don't have a grip on it, how to actually become in charge of the whole business, what's going on inside. Now, clear comprehension will help us. In fact, it will do it if we use it properly. The first step will be to recognize the purpose. Is there any purpose being irritated? Is there any purpose to being drowsy, to being, to having an egocentric mind? Is there any purpose to having an angry mind? Is there any purpose in whatever state it is, the mind? If we can see that there's no purpose in it, it will make it much easier to drop it. If we can see a purpose, because we are still deluded enough to believe that this has a purpose, what we're doing, then we can ascertain what purpose, what purpose we have. Maybe we have the purpose of telling somebody what we think of them. So then, this state of mind that we have, is it the most skillful means to use? Now, if it's negative, negative state of mind, it goes without saying that it is not skillful. It can't be skillful. So the second line of defense then makes it possible for us to substitute or drop. If we have practiced long enough, we'll be able to drop. But it takes years. It's years of practice to just drop. It's much easier to substitute. If it is an angry mind, which one has said, thought, it has a purpose, but one sees that it, this means are not skillful, one will be able to substitute. But if we now believe that the means are even skillful, that it is skillful to have it, the third question should certainly make it quite clear that there's no percentage in keeping this. Namely, is it within the Dhamma? 
Now, obviously, it's going to slow us down. It's going to make our reactions much slower. Well, nothing could be more helpful to our inner peace. The slower, the better. One day, when there is real freedom, there's no reaction. So the slower the reaction is, the easier it is to do something about it, change it, make it different, not have it at all. If we have seen that neither the purpose nor the means or either one of them or the third one, the Dhamma is not included here, is happening, it should make it quite easy to let go. Now, if we do that with our introspection, constantly, we will never get away from the Dhamma, never get away from the practice. And if we don't get away from the Dhamma and don't get away from the practice, then our meditation should flourish easier and our whole life should be imbued with Dhamma. When our whole life is imbued with Dhamma, we're totally protected by it. The Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner, but only the one that practices all the time. Because only then do we have protection all the time. If we practice once in a while, well, we might have protection once in a while. And the less we practice, the less protection there is. So, it only stands to reason that it's only for our own benefit if we actually inquire in this way. We're not going to help anybody else with it. But if we want to help ourselves, that's what we need to do. If we let go, if we have bypassed all three already and haven't found the ability to drop whatever state has arisen which is unfavorable and not beneficial, then the fourth one should help us if we can remember the Dhamma. It's the clear comprehension of non-delusion. A clear comprehension of non-delusion means that we inquire into this, whatever it is that has arisen, whether it is any has carries any of the three characteristics with it. Anicca dukkanata. Impermanence. Is it impermanent? Well, obviously it has to be. There's nothing that isn't. Is it dukkha? Well, quite clearly so. And does it carry a self in it? Does it carry a substance in it? So if we haven't even been able to see that the purpose is wrong, that the means are not skillful, that the Dhamma is not contained in it, maybe this one might do it. That it doesn't have any reality. As I said before, if there is anger arising, we could inquire what we're getting angry at. The hair of the head, the hair of the body, nails, teeth or skin and so on, the other other parts of the body. Which one? 
or maybe sound or whatever it may be. Is there a self in it? Is it impermanent or is there dukkha? Any one of the three will do as an inquiry. We don't have to inquire into all three. But if we don't do these things in daily life, our practice is non-existent. Even if we sit in the morning and the evening. Sitting is not practicing. Sitting is sitting. Practicing is the purification aspect from morning to night. Meditation is our helpful means to get the mind clear enough so that we can actually purify because we see quite clearly that whatever it is that is negative and not skillful is only the greatest detriment to our own happiness. Practice goes on from morning to night, remembering introspection using mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness and clear comprehension go together because mindfulness is knowing only, clear comprehension is investigating and discriminating. A safe cracker can be extremely mindful because if he isn't, he's going to be caught by the police. But obviously he lacks clear comprehension. Mindfulness is knowing only. Clear comprehension is a discriminating factor. Now we do have that. <clears throat> we do it. We discriminate all the time. But we discriminate all the time between what we like and don't like. And that's not the question at all. Because it's based upon our ego illusion, what we like and what we don't like. We're constantly discriminating. In fact, we're constantly discriminating so much that in the end we don't even know that we're doing it because we don't know any other state. We have constantly discriminating mind. We are not aware of it because we haven't any way to see what it's like to be without it. But this discriminating mind goes according to our pleasant or unpleasant feelings, what we like to have and keep or what we'd like to get rid of. And some people have far more unpleasant feelings than pleasant ones, so they need to get rid of far more things than other people. And of course they can't manage so the unpleasant feelings remain. There's nothing to get rid of. There's only to know, to have clear comprehension and to recognize that it's just feeling. Now from the unpleasant feeling, that's how our negative states arise. We'll go through that once more because it is the important aspect of a human being. It's our pre-programmed printout. Over and over and over. And all of us will have to become computer experts at this in order to stop it one day. It's not difficult, but it goes against the ego illusion. And because it goes against this ego illusion, 
most people can't manage to take that trouble. It's too deeply ingrained. So we'll go through that once more. First thing is sense consciousness. We see something, we hear something. We touch something, we smell something, we taste something. Or we might think something. That's how it all starts. And as it starts, we get an immediate feeling, second base of mindfulness feeling base but it is also the second mental aggregate from the sense contact comes a feeling now this feeling can be of three kinds pleasant, unpleasant or neutral now let's use the unpleasant one because that's the kind that everybody wants to get rid of the pleasant ones everybody wants to keep. Let's do the unpleasant ones first. The unpleasant feeling that arises now gives rise to the way we have our mental or emotional state. Because this unpleasant feeling that we get immediately gets translated into our perception and the perception that names it the namer this perception is also connected to our state of consciousness and this is what this footer this discourse is all about states of consciousness we don't have to keep the ones we've got unless we like them very much and like to wallow in them for the rest of this life now the perception, the perceiving does more than just naming it does that now let's say we heard something and the unpleasant feeling arose and the perception says this is wrong mistake now we put ourselves with that perception we put ourselves into a state of consciousness which is negative the wrongness which we perceive there brings with it the mental dislike and that's what we have now now we have the third base of mindfulness the mental emotional state which now has come to dislike which is in our aggregate the mental formation called the mental formation now is dislike and this dislike now can translate into anger or hate which is the next base of mindfulness but the state of consciousness which has the perception in it or the perception which is embedded in our states of consciousness each, either way for us can be elevated if we keep it on the level that we are at 
on this marketplace level. The minute there is this perception of wrong, with it comes already a feeling of negativity. This is the usual, the ordinary human way. Now we can, through our meditative process, train ourselves so that even though we have a clear understanding of the fact that something is not correct, we do not have a negative reaction to it. That takes mindfulness and clear comprehension. We've got to be absolutely mindful and clearly comprehending what's going on in those four modes purpose, skillful means within the Dhamma and the non-delusion. So if we learn to watch every step on the way which takes an enormous amount of mindfulness it takes um, a great pinpointed mindfulness it's not easy to do but in a retreat situation it should be practiced because if we don't practice it now we'll never practice it it's impossible to practice it in the middle of town when there's traffic all over the place here is the situation which makes it possible to become aware of the parts of mind how they interact and follow each other so that eventually we can learn to have those states of consciousness which we would like to have and not just take potluck with whatever arises. To learn that we have to know absolutely clearly that the unpleasant feeling which has arisen because of any kind of sense consciousness does not necessarily have to be the beginning of negative consciousness. It can be either accepted as an unpleasant feeling and as we see it as that, perceive it see its reason for arising, guard ourselves, protect ourselves from becoming negative. It takes determination, patience, mindfulness, and very clear comprehension. And as we can, as we practice that, because of the fact that there's quiet here, we are able to practice this sort of thing, we will see that if we do not allow the mental emotional state to become negative, we are just perceiving without reacting. And then we don't have the danger of having any of the hindrances arise. 
it is an um, it is the basis of mindfulness which are very um, very subtle I mean watching the body movement is not very subtle but watching the mind movement is much more subtle and much more difficult but if we don't recognize it what is happening there we can't change it so the recognition helps us to change it and as we do that we will see that we become free of this pre-programmed way of reacting now the positive states of mind which arise from the pleasant feelings sense consciousness first then the pleasant feeling and then comes a positive mental emotional state this positive state may be one of appreciating one of uh, loving one of caring and we will see if that pleasant feeling as we have the perception of the cause of it we can see quite clearly whether that brings us to a level of consciousness which wants to get and to keep or whether it brings us to a state of consciousness which is just accepting and creating a base of peacefulness now with the unpleasant feeling we can do exactly the same but it's much more difficult we will have to see whether our perception brings a state of consciousness which remains calm and peaceful even though the unpleasant feeling has been perceived as arising out of hearing something that is incorrect or whether our perception has created a state of consciousness which is negative and disliking so we can see quite clearly whether we are disliking hate or wanting greed or whether there's peacefulness and then we realize we can realize that whatever our perceiving has been has created that state of consciousness now if we are skilled in the dhamma our perceiving will never lack impermanence it may say this is wrong but there's also impermanence in it it may say this is wrong but it's based on the ego illusion so why could shouldn't it be wrong it may say this is wrong so it's dukkha it will never get away from the non-delusion and therefore stay on a level of consciousness which is always within the dhamma that needs to be learned we don't do that automatically and as we learn it our meditation is the greatest help for that and as we have this helpfulness in the meditation because the meditation states do take us when they become concentrated to higher levels of consciousness we will realize that only those levels of consciousness are desirable the others are totally undesirable 
it makes life extremely difficult. And most people's life are extremely difficult because their perception is not based on the non-delusion, on the comprehension of that, and the perception therefore brings about a state of consciousness which is either negative in the way of hate or negative in the way of greed. Now when that has run away with us and gone away from us, then we recognize the mental emotional states which are there and try then not to react. Now that's of course possible. And as I've said before, the easiest is the substitution. But if we can stop it before that, it's of course much more beneficial and much easier for us. It's much more beneficial because we're protecting the jewel of our mind from the encrustations of negativity and the um, impact of anything that can be hurtful to our mind and are therefore treating it the way it should be treated, namely as a great jewel. If we don't treat our mind as a great jewel that needs to be protected, we will constantly hurt it through some way of reacting or thinking in a way which not only creates more convolutions in the mind, but also more ruts in the mind, where we will continue to think and react in that way. Now, the continuation of our reactions is that what bugs most people, and therefore we need the mindfulness of the mental states in order to see that there's something that can be done. It needs a calm mind to see it. So mindfulness helps us to meditate. Meditation helps us to be mindful. It's always catch-22. We always need both. And with having both, we will grow in that gradually. Grow and improve in it. It can't be done overnight. It's not an easy thing to do, but we grow in it. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is the content of mind, and it is always used as an understanding of certain ways the Buddha has taught. And we should know them, and we should be able to remember them, and we should be able to recognize them. There are the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, the sense spaces, the six sense spaces, the noble eightfold path. These are used as explanations of what can be in our mind. Now we'll use the noble eightfold path as the descriptive and the explanatory process for this. 
I have already briefly touched upon the hindrances, but we'll look at the Noble Eightfold Path because also it is the uh, key point of the teaching and see how we can use that to understand the content of our mind. It has three aspects, the Noble Eightfold Path, Sila Samarin Panya, Moral Conduct, Concentration, and Wisdom Insight. Although it starts with Wisdom Insight, I'm going to start with the Concentration Aspect, because that's what concerns you most at this time, in order to meditate properly. That starts out with right effort. Sama Vayama. Sama means right. All of the words have Sama in front. Right. Right effort. Who knows what right effort is? Right effort is that which brings results. But dedication. Right effort is not just a little bit. It's completely being completely dedicated towards one's own purification, towards the growth aspect in oneself of the spiritual life, and to seeing the world and oneself completely differently from the way one has ever seen oneself. Right effort has to be one's complete being because otherwise on the spiritual path because otherwise one will expend time and energy and effort in many directions. And if we do that will get a little bit of everything. And that's what most people do. They get a little bit of everything. They get a little bit of meditation and they get a little bit of sense pleasures and they get a little bit of relationships and they get a little bit of traveling and they get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And a little bit of the Buddha's teaching out of the books or from what they hear. That's not right effort. In fact, it's wrong effort. We, we only have limited amount of en- energy and a very limited amount of time. And we've got to make up our mind what to use it for. And most people have the idea that their m- most sustained effort should go towards the worldly life and then use a little bit of meditation to improve that worldly life. That's a totally wrong way of looking at it, of course. The actual fact of the matter is that our complete and total dedication should be to our spirituality. Worldly life intrudes anyway 
we've got to eat, we've got to sleep, we've got to go to the toilet, we've got to answer the telephone, we have to write letters, we've got to do all those things, or get in the car and buy something. Everybody has to do that. Worldly life is there all the time. But if one uses that as one's priority and then puts that little bit of meditation into it, I always compare that to being a little bit pregnant. It doesn't work. It just isn't possible. It's either this or that. And worldly life never disappears. As long as we've got this body, we're in the world. And it's got to be looked after. It's got to be taken care of. But to be dedicated with right effort towards the practice, does not necessarily mean that one has to be in a retreat uh, 12 months out of the year, nor does it mean that one has to live in a cave, nor does it mean that one has to go anywhere special. Nothing special. Used to be a Zen paper in Sydney. Excellent title. Got lost meanwhile the title. Nothing special, just practicing from morning to night by being mindful and watching and using clear comprehension and changing oneself over and over again until there's nothing, nothing left there to be changed. It's all gone. The whole person has disappeared. There's nothing to be changed. That's right effort. Well, that's a bit much maybe. So we have other possibilities for right effort. Right effort is also the supreme effort, the four padanas, which are actually four of the 37 factors of enlightenment, which is quite important. And they contain, concern our thinking habits. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen, to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. These are called the four supreme efforts. And they go right in line with what I've just explained, the substitution process. We don't have to believe what we're thinking. We don't have to believe these um, negative uh, ways of the mind convolutions. We can substitute. We can substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. Now, of course, the longer we've been meditating, the easier it is to substitute because we've been substituting for years on end any discursive thinking with the breath, so we're so um, habitually geared toward that, it comes natural. In the beginning, it's got to be done with deliberation. Anything that is unwholesome is also not skillful. And anything that isn't skillful and isn't wholesome brings unhappiness to the mind. So, one could say, I think with justification, that unwholesome thinking is foolish because it makes oneself unhappy. 
the foolishness of it is so immense and enormous that only after one has finally seen it in oneself is one able to laugh about it. One's got to be able to see it. And then, when one has seen it and has laughed about it, then one will be able to substitute without any difficulty. Because it's laughable to be so foolish to make oneself voluntarily unhappy. And that's what humanity does. Of course, we only do that when we find the scapegoat, which we have done until we practice. No more scapegoats has to come a substitution process. So these four supreme efforts have been taught by the Buddha as supremely important and supremely also difficult because the ordinary human being believes what he or she is thinking. Now, we don't have to do that. We don't have to believe that anymore. If we have labeled our thoughts and have more than once said nonsense, which we should have, then we don't believe it any longer. And then the changeover is simple. And that is one part of the right effort that we can practice in daily living constantly, all the time. So there is right effort as watching our thinking process. I'll start tomorrow with right effort as it concerns watching our emotional process. Because we have now gone past the mental emotional states and have already reacted to them and have already started a thought process which contains either this or that. So we can become aware of the fact that now right effort has to start. See, when the mental emotional states, the third base of mindfulness, have not been reacted to yet, the right effort is very minor because it's very simple and very easy. We just let go. But having stopped there and not having let go, then right effort has to be made in a more determined manner. The mental emotional states that we don't react will never bring any dukkha because they are just there momentarily and without a reaction there's nothing happening. They're just there. You can compare them maybe to a ray of sunshine that comes through the window. It's just there. Nothing particular about it or a black cloud in the sky. It's just there. Nothing happening. But when you start thinking that black clouds should not be there, then there's dukkha. 
And this is what happens the minute we start reacting to the mental emotional state. We, we, when the, whether we react to it with a negativity of dislike or whether we, we react to it with the wanting to have and to keep. So now, in the fourth base of mindfulness, we come to all the measures we can take in order to get the content of mind on the right level where we again have the purification aspect. This is not only the last base of mindfulness, but it's also our last resort. This is where we get stuck. If we don't do something about it, well, then we're going to be angry or worried or fearful or sloppy or whatever it is we are. So there is the point of doing something. Now that is enough for this one evening, enough food for thought, I think. Any questions? this way of thinking and this process of the about yourself and the things that are happening around you and you can you know think clearly and react in a positive way you get into this state and you really feel very confident but could you fall back into the temptation again and go into the madness like get to a very pure strong level and then fall back Enlightened people don't fall back. So one has to get enlightened to never actually a person that is um, on the second step of enlightenment, not fully enlightened, would not easily fall back. Isn't there seven states? Four. Four. And the first state which could see that but think fall back easily. How about if they want to get back to that first state? Would it be hard for them? To the good state? To the first. Yeah, but what do you mean to get back to that? They've, yeah, they've done it. They're there. But they could but they could still have very very negative thoughts. They could still have very negative thoughts. To the first. Yes. Yeah. So anybody who hasn't even done that would have negative and positive thoughts in at least 50-50% um, alteration, but most people have, you know, sometimes 40-60 and sometimes 60-40, it's not always 50-50. If you, so, sorry, I'm not quite with you. If you use clear comprehension yes. and you make your first inquiry, mm-hmm. which is, uh, are you talking now about finding out the purpose of what yeah. you're doing, right? And then you get what? You get immediately ego? Mm. Um, most people don't get it right away. They first get the answer, oh, this is a very good thing to do. 
And the second, then they, then they're supposed to ask again, why is it a good thing to do? Oh, because it's uh, going to make me money, or it's going to make me happy, or my family would probably like it, or I'm going to feel good about it. And then they're going to have to inquire, well, why am I going to feel good about it? Well, because it tastes good, or it feels good, or it's something or other. And uh, so it takes quite a long time to get down to that ego one. No, no, the, 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 if it's a wrong purpose, if it's a right purpose, then if, if you've inquired into the purpose and it, it seems questionable, you're not sure whether the purpose is 100% okay, then it's definitely ego. But if it is perfectly alright, it can be a giving, a helping, you know. Yes, yes. And also, you see now, anyone who still has ego, right, even doing the best thing, there's still the underlying ego there, but one isn't acting it out. One is letting it rest down there and acting out something else, but it's in there, right? Even for the non-returner, it is said that the ego clings to the non-returner like the scent clings to the flower. So imagine what clings to other people. <laughs> yes. Um, with the fourth dimension of mindfulness, is that the like the mental state we have reacted to? Yes. So the third one is the thinking, like the original. Um, not the thinking so much. It's a mental, emotional state. In other words, it's not just thinking, 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 but it is knowing that the mind... I didn't bring it up here. I was going to read you what the Buddha said. <laughs> knowing that the mind is irritated, contracted, expansive, loving, hating, all those things. It's knowing the state. No. The reaction is the fourth one. That's the content of mind. That, that is then getting angry. You can have an angry, irritated state arising. It's not really angry state. It's an irritated state arising. You don't have to get angry. You can feel it, irritation, and substitute or drop it. Yes, and that's where we use then the understanding of the hindrances, the Noble Eightfold Path and those things in order to help us to see that what is beneficial and what isn't. And when you have a strong enough mind, you can let those states go. The third one, yes. yes. If you've been captured at the third. Yes. And then at the fourth, then you have Then you have to really, yes, lots of effort. And as you get more and more habitually inclined to this introspection and have been, as I say, meditating more and more with, and, and always, I mean, we have to substitute whether we want to or not, um, it becomes more and more of a habit. It becomes easier and easier as one goes along. There's something arising. Substitute. If one can't get rid of it at all, 
you know, some negative states. I don't mean at all. If one can't get rid of it for a long time, it can be extremely uh, debilitating and very detrimental to one's well-being, physical and mental. Yes. Yes. Well, that's the idea of mindfulness. (laughs) But, I mean, after all, we have the fourth base also, so that, you know, if it gets away from us in the third base, we've got the fourth one to work with. And I'll be explaining that more and more, the fourth one, as we can use the paths of the path and all that. So, I mean, the third one does get away from people naturally, but the fourth one is the one where we can make the radical change. Because in our reaction. In our reaction. Sorry? In our reaction to a reason. One should react as if something is quite obvious. Yes, yes, because you know, you know that, yes. Yeah. The content of the mind. Then then you might react in a positive or negative way. Depends. That's the next step, isn't it? No. Um, That's already this. That's already the reaction. Your mental emotional states of the mind is the third one. And then the next one is your reaction to that state, which then is the content of the mind, either an angry mind or depressed. uh, You get really angry and... and, uh, you know, act out angry or speak angry or that sort of thing. That's then the content of the mind. That's your reaction. Or it could be a positive, skillful. Yeah, it could be that too. If you have the strength and the ability to see that, you can change that. Just turn it around. Yeah, that's right. Takes a bit of doing. (laughs) That's what we want to learn. Yes. Could you say that if your third state, you're less attached to what Yes, that's right. The attachment has already happened, and that's why the fourth state has happened. In the third state, you're still quite objective. You're just seeing it and saying, oh, dropping it or substituting it. You're still quite an objective observer. But when you've done the fourth one, you have a, that's how the fourth one comes to be, because you weren't objective any longer. You believed the, the state. Yes. In that case, um, there's nothing really we can do until the until the third stage. In other words, it's always going to be there, the first, second, and the third stage. No, there is something you can do. I was trying to explain that. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, the feeling comes first, the unpleasant feeling, right? And from that feeling. We, we could stop right there. And that would be ideal. That is, then we don't have to do anything further. But this is, of course, very difficult. Right? So, if we don't do anything further, there's nothing to worry about. It's just it. We've got a pleasant feeling, it goes away. We've got an unpleasant feeling, it goes away. So what? We just carry on with whatever we're doing. Right? We don't get caught into any of our 
emotions and reactions or anything at all. We don't get caught. But usually that second stage gets away from us. And now comes this conscious perceiving what it is. So instead of just saying, oh, this is an unpleasant feeling, what we're perceiving is that which our memory helps us to do and what our level of consciousness is. So maybe our level of consciousness is um, quite low and we might, we might perceive um, being threatened. So when we perceive that, our consciousness goes on to this level of being threatened and then our mental emotional state is, I feel threatened. And then if I don't watch out, I probably come, become aggressive. But if I can catch it on the third level, that I'm feeling threatened from nothing, I can drop it and exchange it with something substituted. But having, having had the level of consciousness fairly low, the perception is like that. But if the level of consciousness has remained high from the meditation or from one's own practice, then that unpleasant feeling can be seen as just unpleasant feeling and nothing else. No, un- you can just watch it go away. Yes, you can. When you see something that gives you an unpleasant feeling, if, you, if your equanimity becomes greater and greater, the un- feeling will become neutral. Let's say you see a dead, bloated body being eaten up by maggots. gives you an unpleasant feeling. But if you've got a great deal of equanimity and insight, the feeling is going to be neutral. Well, not once you've got it. Once you've got it, you've got it. Unpleasant feeling, you get it. That's it. You've got it. But you can come to a level of insight where the unpleasant feeling does not arise from such things. But unpleasant sensation also arises for the arahant, which means painful body sensation. There's no reaction to it. It doesn't react to it. But from the from your own perception, you see, this is where the states of consciousness come in. When when from your own perception of what it is, this is this um, um, simile of the snake and the rope, the rope trick. You lie in a dark room at night. That's the story of that of the monk lying in a dark room at night, and there is this, um, and there he sees a shape like a snake hanging down from the rafters, and he's deadly scared, and he is uh, unable to go to sleep. He's scared the whole night that this snake is going to fall down on him and bite. And when he wakes up in the morning, it's a rope. So the perception, his perception brought him to a state of consciousness 
just totally negative. If you had had a perception of, well, it just is, never mind snake or rope or whatever, it just is, he would have slept nicely. So the perception that we put into it is completely connected to our states of consciousness. And you will have that experience that yourself when you are in a good state of consciousness. You may be able to see um, the bush as very beautiful. And in a bad state of consciousness, you might be scared of, well, yes, of, of uh, poisonous snakes. And don't like to walk around in it. The same person in the, probably in the two days running. So our perceiving and the states of consciousness are completely bound up with each other. And as we raise our states of consciousness, our perceiving changes. Doesn't mean that we don't see the things rightly, but we don't see them as having any kind of negative thing in in them. You get the pleasant feeling first and then you like it. Of course you can change it. You can have the pleasant feeling and not like it. But the feeling doesn't change, but you can change the like and dislike the reaction. So the, the feeling is always going to be the same. Well, that actually, that feeling is a sensation actually. It's a sensation. It's a taste sensation. So that is pleasant or unpleasant, yes. And when it's pleasant, uh, one doesn't have to really um, like it and want it and then it's just a feeling. Well, that takes that takes an arahant. An arahant. An arahant is an enlightened one. I suppose to enlighten you just appreciate whatever you're given. Probably grass or dogged. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it very much. I've never heard of the Buddha eating grass. <laughs> I don't think anybody would give you that either. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing, isn't it, when the hate stops? Something good has happened. I would recommend it. Sure, Laya. <laughs> I recommend it too. <laughs> but how does that fit into these categories? Which one? Which category do you want to fit it into? The, the hate reaction is an emotional state. 
which you're watching. But if you've already become, the mind is already hating somebody or something, then you've got already content of mind. If you've only got a hate um, state, a hating state without hating anybody or anything, then it's the third one. And then if you substitute that hating state to the um, awareness of the uh, physical sensation, then you have substituted. Very, very um, beneficial. And then as they uh, subside the physical reaction, then the whole thing is finished. Is that clear? Each emotion is accompanied by a physical sensation. Well, yes, but not always noticeable. Not not noticeable always and not for everyone. If it's a very strong emotion, yes, then you will find a strong uh, physical thing also happening. But these minor things and minor emotions the um, physical is uh, very uh, on such a low ebb that it's very hard to get to. Are you t- are you aiming to use the physical sensation as your substitute at all times? I don't know that that will work. Fear has a strong physical sensation with it. Contraction. That's easy to find fear in a physical. But, you know, there are minor, minor mental emotion states which don't have such strong reactions. If you hate, well, you can get very hot. Uh, hateful is very hot. That's possible too, yes. Yeah, possible. But a, a, a mild dislike would not have such a strong uh, physical Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that your heart is a fountain. A fountain of love. 
and fill yourself from head to toe with the love that comes out of that fountain. Warming, soft and gentle, embracing, penetrating, protecting, direct the fountain to the person nearest you. Fill him or her with the love that comes out of that infinite fountain of love in your heart. Warming, caring, gentle and protective. Now let the fountain of love from your heart fill everyone here. With your care and concern, your warmth, your gentleness. Think of all the people who are near and dear to you and let the fountain of love from your heart fill them from head to toe with the warmth, the feeling 
of togetherness. Your care. Think of your friends. Let the fountain in your heart reach out to them, filling them with your love and friendship. beautiful, gentle, warm and caring. Let that fountain in your heart become larger, reach further and higher. To include everyone who is part of your life. Let them be filled and drenched with your love. Think of anyone whom you find difficult. A fountain of love in your heart keeps going 
and filling that person too with your warmth and your care. With a feeling of being together gentle, attentive, Let that fountain in your heart grow and extend and spray love to beings near and far. Make it immense so that it can reach further and further with the warmth and connectedness gentleness that your heart can give drench yourself with it. Let it fill you, surround you, and cover you. Being within you and outside of you. So that there's nothing else except the feeling of love. 